sometimes what's shaking our faith is not the faith in ourselves, but our faith in the church is what's being shaken. What does the allegory of the olive tree tell us about that? First of all, the fact that a tree is used as the metaphor lets us know something, because a tree is a living thing. This is not the allegory of the building, where anything that goes wrong with it is because the builder didn't make it according to specs. This one, it's a living thing. And anything that is living tends to have to change, to adapt, to evolve. Living things experience fluctuations, health and sickness, strength and weakness, learning and growth, including growing pains. Try to raise a child and you'll see how hard it can be to make a living thing turn out exactly the way you want it to be. So when the Lord says in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, as he describes his church as the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, he's still well pleased with it. The truth assures that, but the living side of the church, again, blessed because it's adaptability and it's a, a ability to grow. But the fact that it grows lets us know that there are things that needed to be grown and learned from. Because the church is a living thing, there are times when the Lord tells his servants exactly what he's going to do, and there are times where the Lord asks his servants what he thinks they should do. There's a, a time in verse 33, for example, where the Lord simply turns to his servant and says, what shall we do unto the tree? Now, this is the all-knowing Lord asking and an not all-knowing uh, servant, what do you think we should do? It seems that the Lord of the vineyard is not just growing trees, he's growing servants. Remember the story that Lawrence C. Dunn once told? I think it was Lawrence C. Dunn. Uh, when he was ranching, cattle ranching, he let his boys run the ranch and let them kind of make their mistakes and learn on the fly. And a neighbor talked to dad and said, your boys don't, don't know what they're doing. Uh, your herd could turn out so much better if you took everything under control. And, and Elder Dunn said, I'm not raising cows. I'm raising boys. And so to think about the Lord in this, in this allegory, Yes, he's raising trees, but he's also raising servants. And so a lot like he does with the brother of Jared and his barges, well, I'll tell you to do some things, like how to allow air into your vessel. But I want you to tell me other things, like how would you like light to shine? I'm going to leave that on you. It's amazing to see, again, the synergy between humanity and divinity that comes together into God's church. His true church God's side, his living church, humanity's side, and times where the Lord is crystal clear, this is exactly how it needs to be done, and times where the Lord says, okay, prophets and apostles, okay, bishops and Relief Society presidents, okay, moms and dads, what would you like to do here? What should be done? What shall we do unto the tree? There are both divine and human fingerprints all over the restoration, and sometimes that makes the church seem a little less than what we want it to be. Now, when things go wrong in church history, when things go wrong in your ward or in your state, when it feels like the church is moving in a direction or did move in a direction that shakes your faith in it, what do we do? We tend to do this in verse 47. In verse 47, the Lord asks this very last line, who is it that has corrupted my vineyard? The question is, who? In other words, where can I point my finger and place the blame? We play pin the blame on the scapegoat frequently. 
And so often we're looking for who did this? Whose fault is it that this episode occurred in church history? Now, sometimes there are people to blame on certain things. I'm the first to admit that. But I think sometimes no one's to blame. Sometimes there's no fault anywhere. Now, there are times, for example, it's not us, it's not others, it's not even Satan. It might not be anybody's fault. Some things just happen. Some plants just get sick. Some living things take, take time to adapt to new circumstances. Sometimes we just don't ask the right questions. I'm amazed at section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example. The church is like eight, year, eight months old, and they asked the Lord the question, basically, are we doing this whole church thing right as far as who's allowed to come? Again, most early Latter-day Saints came from a Puritan background where it was only the faithful are welcome. Uh, the church was supposed to be a gathering of the visibly elect in Puritan times. It was almost like, we'll come and bear your testimony to, you, to us, and we'll critique it to see if we're going to let you into church. Can you imagine that happening in your ward? After every testimony on fast and testimony meeting, the bishopric holds up cards like, oh, it was a 10. You can stay. You can have the sacrament. Other ones, yeah, the three better hold off this week, or you're not welcome in our congregation. That was, was Puritanism in the, in the 16 and 1700s. Well, Joseph Smith and his, and his group in the 1800s is still kind of grappling with this. This is supposed to be the true church. Is anybody allowed to come? And they were starting to move in the direction of kind of Puritan, Puritan exclusivism until section 46, and they asked the question, who can come to church? And the Lord says, everybody. If they're, if they're not members of the church, let them come. If they're members and they're not faithful, let them come. If they're in transgression, they probably shouldn't take the sacrament, but let them come. To me, the reason we have visitors welcome on the, on the bottom of our church signs is because of section 46. And, and the reason it even says that is because the rest of the chapter is full of spiritual gifts, which everyone has. Let them come because they'll have gifts to bring to the table. I picture the saints going, wait, we, we've been doing it kind of wrong? And the Lord going, yeah. I mean, not wrong enough that I'm, that I'm going to reject the church, but, but you got some improving to do. And I picture the saints going, well, when were you going to get around to telling us? And the Lord probably smiling and going, when were you going to get around to asking me? I'm amazed. Well, I'll put it this way. In Enoch... Well, in Moses 6 and 7, Enoch's visions, he sees, he sees a God who weeps. We love that phrase in the church. But there's a phrase in Acts chapter 17 about a God who winks. A God, according to Paul, who sees our childish idolatries and winks for a time, saying, mm, not what I have in mind, but your kids and you're growing. And then Paul says, to this point, God has winked at your idolatries. Now he's asking you to repent. We have a weeping God, but we also have a winking God who is patient with us as we figure things out. When, he, when, when the saints are, are revealed uh, baptism for the dead, and they're so thrilled by the doctrine that they run headlong into the Mississippi and start baptizing each other willy-nilly. Men on behalf of women and women on, behalf, on proxy for men. And no recorders and nobody writing anything down. And the Lord, basically when you read section 124 and 127, it's like the Lord is saying, love the enthusiasm, kids. Love the enthusiasm. I'll take what you're doing for now, but I'm letting you know there's 
room for improvement. And I'll give you time to get there. Please get there in the time that I'm giving you. Because then the winking period is over. Again, as we struggle sometimes with the church and wonder, who has done this? Sometimes nobody. Sometimes it's just we're figuring things out and we're learning and God is is raising boys and not just cows. That the master is training the servant and not just nurturing and nourishing the tree. Sometimes bad things are even the result of good things. We sometimes talk about good problems. Oh, that's a good problem to have. And one of the ultimate ones is mentioned right here in verse 48. When he asks, right on the heels of asking the question, who did this? Whose fault is it? He says, the servant says to his master in 48, is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard? Loft, a lofty vineyard? That's, isn't that a good thing? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots, which are good? And because the branches overcame the roots, they grew faster than the strength of the roots. They took strength unto themselves. Is not this the cause that the trees of thy vineyard have become corrupted? Nobody did it. I mean, in the wheat and the tares parable, somebody did it. An enemy hath done this. He went in and planted weeds, planted tares everywhere. But in this case, the, the, the servant suggests another possibility. Maybe some of the things that we're struggling with are because the tree is growing so fast. Maybe that's a problem. And I think it's interesting if we really ponder some of the challenges we've seen in the history of the church in the 19th, 20th, or 21st centuries, are some of our pains growing things? I think we've learned some of the lessons from Latin America and are implementing them in Africa to try to have more slow and steady growth where roots can grow at the same time as branches and that leadership on the ground can keep track and keep pace with the, the rapid expansion that's taking place all around it. The fact that Elder Oaks was sent to the Philippines and Elder Holland was sent to Chile years ago as area presidents was telling that in two areas of the most rapid growth in the church, we need apostles on the ground to help so solve some of the problems, the good problems, the problems that no one caused, but the problems that came because of the loftiness of the vineyard. I think in my own experience of of being in, in church leadership circles and helping to write curriculum for church education. I think sometimes centralization and bureaucratization and standardization and, and simplification, for some members of the church, that makes it really hard to grapple with church history issues that I'd never heard about. Or uh, why do we keep talking about these same things? Um, or the culture of the church this, or the so much of it is the church is growing at breakneck speed. And I think sometimes to help compensate for the loftiness of our vineyard, there are challenges that creep in that no one caused. It's just part of the natural challenges of worldwide growth. I hope we can be okay with that and realize that some of the problems that we sometimes, that sometimes shake our faith, if you think hard, about some specific examples. These are problems that come because branches have overpowered roots. Another thing to say about the church. Verse 8 mentions an interesting detail about the tree. 
Verse 8, he says, Behold, saith the Lord of the vineyard, I take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. Here's the phrase. It mattereth not that if it so be that the root of this tree will perish, I may preserve the fruit thereof unto myself. Now, for a man who's in charge of trees, this is an interesting admission. If the root perishes, it mattereth not. What am I after? The fruit. God seems to, to care more about the fruit than the root. You can almost hear John the Baptist say to the Pharisees that were so proud of their Jewish roots. Who cares about those roots? God can bring up, can raise up out of these stones children unto Abraham. I, 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 don't, I, I worry less about your lineage than I do about your life. I care less about your family than I do about your faith and your fruits. And so that same John the Baptist, what does he say to those that were so proud of their roots? Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. In this same verse, verse 8, if the roots perish, they perish. If the tree dies, it dies. What I care about is the fruit. Now, what I love about the Lord in that passage is that he does not confuse means and ends. What's the church for? If, if we take in this analogy that the church are the roots and its members are the fruits, that the church is there to try to produce good members, to bring forth the kingdom of God on the earth, right? Among its people, the kingdom is within us, right? The Lord says. Uh, it reminds me of Nephi, who was a genius when it came to distinguishing between uh, fruits and roots. When he said at the end of 2 Nephi 33, if you don't believe these words, totally fine. Believe in Jesus. Okay? What matters is the ends, Christ. This book is just a means to that end. If you don't like the book, that's all right. Of course, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says, of course, if you like Jesus, you'll like the book. They're his words. But again, I'm, I'm trying to clarify. I see the end. Get to the end by whatever means. This means is one that will help you get there, but I'm not confusing the two. Same with the church. Elder or Parable Lee... M. Russell Ballard, Neil A. Maxwell have all used the analogy of scaffolding. The church as scaffolding. When we talk about building the kingdom, it's, it's us that we're building, not the church. And the Lord seems to be saying in verse 8, eh, church, take it or leave it. It's the members that matter. Uh, scaffolding, Elder Maxwell said, the church will someday come down like so much scaffolding leaving the eternal family standing. My, one of my best friends in college got sealed in the Manti Temple. Beautiful temple. He and his wife went there to take their wedding pictures, the bridal pictures before the, the wedding even took place. And when they got there, the temple was having some exterior work done, and it was covered in scaffolding. Uh, the best, I mean, the, their, temp, their wedding pictures were beautiful. But it was husband, wife, all the friends, and all the family in a temple covered in poles and wooden boards. They were so devastated by the look of scaffolding that after the temple was completely done and the scaffolding was take, taken down, they actually got dressed back in wedding dress and rented a tux again and went back to retake their wedding pictures. They couldn't take all the ones with family and friends, of course. But there's something about scaffolding that is so necessary and so important, but also so temporary, because it's the means to a greater end. Keep that in mind as you think about the church. Quick story for you. I've always loved other churches. Uh, I got to speak in a Catholic church when I was in high school. That was my first real 
uh, interfaith experience. And when I was in Tennessee, I'd go to other churches as often as I could. Uh, it was fun to be a student at the Divinity School and have friends that were leading and, and ministering in a lot of those area churches, and I'd go with them. We were walking into a Methodist church one, and, and I saw a friend from school, and her jaw just dropped and said, are, are you allowed to be here? And I just laughed and said, you tell me. I mean, you, this is your place. It's okay with my people if it's okay with your people, but you've got home court advantage. And she la laughed and smiled and said, yeah, come, come join me. Uh, the Methodist hymn book, by the way, is like twice as big as ours. I'm so jealous. Uh, but I would go to the Presbyterians. I went with the, I, I worshiped with the Quakers once. I'd go to the Baha'i faith. I, I just love faith and people of other faiths. I'd been to Catholic Mass several times and always enjoyed that, but I'd never been to a Spanish Mass, so I wanted to try. Uh, and so I went to uh, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe in Nashville and uh, waited outside to see people come in and, and try to get a sense of how much of my Latter-day Saint attire needed to be taken off. You know, there, okay, that goes my coat. Okay, that goes my tie. Just are we dressed up? Are we dressed down? And I went in. I was probably the only gringo there, but had a beautiful experience in, in La Misa. In Spanish Mass. When it was done, I had to rush over to the El Barrio Providencia, the Spanish ward in Nashville. I was the only Spanish speaker in the State Young Men's Presidency at the time, and I needed to train their Young Men's Presidency, so I went. And I was there in time for sacrament meeting as well. And, uh, and as soon as that meeting was over, our my own family ward in a different part of, of Nashville uh, met at one o'clock, and I still had enough time, so I thought, oh, I can run home and go to church with my family too. Now, if you're a religious geek like me, this was like a case study extraordinaire. I got to go to three different congregations, and the first two were the same culture, Latino, but different faiths, Catholic and Latter-day Saint. And then the second and third were the same faith, both Latter-day Saint sacrament meetings, but different cultures, Latino and Gringo. And just to be able to see the differences along those lines was, was amazing to me. What struck me most was the difference between Spanish Mass and Spanish sacrament meeting. The Mass was beautiful, uh, perfectly orchestrated. The sermon was flawless. It's a professional minister. It's a priest. Uh, everything just flowed exactly according to plan. It was a beautiful experience. I went to Spanish sacrament meeting, and I think the priests forgot the bread that day and were scrambling to finally find somebody that had some. Uh, the poor priest must have been flustered by that because when he was trying to give the prayer on the bread and the water, he kept messing up and looking nervously over at the obispo, and he'd look over and sadly shake his head. You know. uh, it, was, it was a comedy of errors, honestly. And I thought, man, if a Catholic came to sacrament meeting from Mass like I just did, they'd think, who's running this thing? What kind of a church is this? Uh, however, it happened to be fast and testimony meeting. And the space between the pew, uh, between pulpit and pew, I call that the gulf of misery and endless woe, uh, that, that space was constantly being crossed by people, literally, as they came up to bear their testimony, to share the hand of God in their lives, the experiences that they were having with heaven. It was moving. As I saw these humble, wonderful Latino Latter-day Saints, my brothers and sisters, ennobled by the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that nobility from the pulpit, and then humbly returning to their place on the pew. As I compared Spanish Mass and Spanish Sacrament meeting, I realized that what's taking place at the pulpit is so far superior in Catholicism or Protestantism with their professional clergy, but what is taking place in the pew is magnificent in what we used to call Mormonism.
and I realize that what God cares about in separating that gulf of misery and endless woe is what happens in the pew. God's okay with stumble and bumble and grind it till you find it at the pulpit. As people come up and try to preach, we don't even call them sermons, we call them talks. Maybe that's all we can do. I just, just get up and talk, okay? It'll be all right. You'll learn. Not only are people coming up and going down on testimony meeting, they're coming up and going down with callings, times that they lead and times that they follow. It's amazing to me. It's as if, honestly, since that time, I, there have been times I've struggled in the church too. You want to you want to know an occupational hazard of teaching the gospel for a living? Go to church and listen to people preach on subjects that you've taught before a million times. Go to gospel doctrine, where no matter what the lesson is on, you've taught that block of scripture dozens of times before. It was it was hard for me at times. It no longer is, and the day that changed everything for me was that day, seeing the difference between Spanish Mass and Spanish Sacrament. I realized this is our chance to practice. And God cares so much less about the program than he does about the people. And if the program takes hits, even if the church itself seems less than, if the roots have to perish, so be it, it's scaffolding. I intended to take it down someday anyway. But look at the fruit. It's amazing. It's inspiring what the Church of Jesus Christ is doing to make saints out of any of us. I, I'm amazed by it. I no longer get bored in fast and testimony meeting or in gospel doctrine or anywhere else. I sit there and think, this is your turn to practice on me. And I'm so humbled that I get opportunities to practice on others. We all need it as much as we can get. If that means your faith in the church is a little bit shaky because of some of the things that you see, step back and look at the church's effect on its members and realize that God cares more about fruit than he does about root. And that's an important thing for me. There's something else I want to understand, though, before we completely start taking down scaffolding before it's before the building is ready to stand okay uh, I, I admit that what the, the principle I've just taught can be can be taken to the extreme or prematurely and the Lord wants to caution us away from that as well let me just throw out a handful of verses because somehow even though in verse 8 he says if the root perishes I might preserve root, uh, fruit and that's what I care about he does say this as well Verse 36, nevertheless, I know that the roots are good. So I still love the church. It's true. It, yeah, it's living, but it's true. Verse 53, this will I do that the tree may not perish, that perhaps I may preserve unto myself the roots thereof for mine own purpose. God still has a purpose even for his roots. Uh, in 2 Nephi 29, when it's a Bible, a Bible, we don't need another Bible. He cautions us and says, do you even realize where the Bible came from? Do you care about the Jews, my ancient covenant people? I think sometimes we're, we're so quick to be supersessionists that, oh, Christianity uh, fulfilled the Jewish law, and so there's no need for that. 
as Latter-day Saints, we could be called super-duper sessionists. It's not just Christianity superseding Judaism. Oh, it's Latter-day Saints superseding Christianity. Careful. God has purposes for his roots all the way back. And then perhaps most clearly, notice verse 60, halfway down, that perhaps the trees of my vineyard may bring forth again good fruit, that I may have joy again in the fruit of my vineyard. So it's still fruit that he's after. But perhaps that I may rejoice exceedingly that I have preserved the roots and the branches of the first fruit. It's like, I want fruit. That's my biggest goal. That's what I'm after. But boy, would I rejoice exceedingly if I can also, in the same breath, preserve roots and branches as well. I love the means. And as they get to the ends, my focus is on the ends, granted, but oh, I have purposes in these means. So love the church recognize where it fits in God's plan and view it accordingly. There's another element about roots and branches I want to speak to briefly when it comes to the church. When you think about a tree, what's the purpose of the roots and what are the purposes of the branches? It's interesting that both need each other. The, br the branches need the roots because the roots are where we get the water and the nutrients from the soil. But the roots need the branches because that's where photosynthesis is taking place in the leaves as the branches reach out to the light. It's almost, almost like the, this division of labor almost, where the roots are saying, water, I got you. And the branches are saying, light, I'm here for you. And roots, since you can't get to the light, I got you covered. And the roots saying, and branches, since, since you can't get to the nutrients of the soil, I got you covered. You can't have one without the other, and both are absolutely essential. One, one of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith of all time, he said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. You take these opposites, force them to coexist, things like justice and mercy, or faith and works. And to me, one of the great contraries of Jacob chapter 5 is roots and branches. Roots, what went before, the things out of which we grow, and branches, what comes after, the things that, are, that we're growing toward. Notice in verse 18, the way these two things work together side by side. In 18 he says, He said it to his servant, Behold, the branches of the wild tree have taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof, that the root hath brought forth much strength. So because the, the, the branches were able to tap into the moisture of the root, the root ended up helping those branches. But then as you go on, look at the end of verse 18. Now, if we had not grafted in these branches, the tree thereof would have perished. So without the moisture of the roots, the branches never would have survived. But without the power of the branches and the light that they're bringing in, then the tree itself, roots and all, would have perished as well. The long and short of it is, the branches need the roots and the roots need the branches. Proving contraries, truth is made manifest. So how does that, what does that look like in a ward? If the roots are lifelong members and the branches are recent converts, do you understand the power and the stability that one brings and the new life and, and vitality that the other brings? If the roots are those with pioneer ancestry and the branches are brand new investigators that still don't even know the full name of the church, what an amazing combination. Think of tradition from the roots, 
coupled with adaptability from the branches. The roots looking to the past, the history of the church, and the branches reaching for the future of the church. The stability of the roots combined with the growth of the branches. The old in a ward and the young in a ward. It's one of the great blessings of having geographically demarcated wards. That we don't just associate with people of our own age. Yes, I know YSA wards and stakes are an exception to that, but it's it's a means to an end. Okay, there's that age needs some serious scaffolding to help create the eternal family. Okay, uh, but to think of old and young coming together is is an, a, a masterful thing in the church. Uh, think of roots like the Wasatch Front combined with branches like the worldwide church. The fact that we have more members outside of the United States and Canada than inside is amazing to me. Think of the combination of leadership, roots, and membership branches. Again, pulpit and pew coming together. There's a, an analogy that's used throughout the, uh, in certain circles of the church between the liahona and the iron rod. This is often a, a, a metaphor that's used in intellectual circles or in academic circles uh, of Latter-day Saints that sometimes seem to, Latter-day Saints, I should say liahona Latter-day Saints that sometimes look down their noses at iron rod members thinking, oh, you have to be told everything. Uh, you're not open to the ambiguity that is inherent in the, in the liahona. I would simply caution both sides and remind them both that both are necessary. There are times in life that we need an iron rod to give us the, the strict, plain, clear path home. And there are times where we need the flexibility of the liahona, where the spindles are moving and the words are changing and it's working or not working according to our faith and heed and diligence. In this analogy, the iron rod are the roots. The liahona are the branches. These roots that are fixed and, un, and unmoving and unbending in our, our traditionalism. But at the same time, this wonderful liahona flexibility and inspiration and leaves and branches just spreading out in all directions, seeking light from wherever it might come. In your ward, there may be conservatives and liberals. There may be Republicans and Democrats. Throughout, and that seems, and is it because conservatives and Republicans are very much like roots, and liberals and Democrats are very much like branches uh, in many ways. And what's interesting, if you look at denominationalism in America currently, throughout history, it's been vertical separations, uh, in almost like silos. Here's the Presbyterians, here's the Methodists, here's the Baptists, here's the Episcopalians. For about the last hundred years, Rather than having these vertical separations, we're starting to see this horizontal split through them all that separates not just Presbyterians from Methodists, but it separates liberal Presbyterians from conservative Presbyterians. There have been actual schisms within the faith over that. There are liberal Baptists and more conservative Baptists. There are more liberal Methodists and more conservative Methodists. You could say the same thing about Latter-day Saints. There are more liberal Latter-day Saints and more conservative Latter-day Saints. That we're all in the same ward, in the same household of faith is essential. Because of our prophetic leadership, we don't have options really of separating it out into two different LDS churches, the liberal one and the conservative one. And I wouldn't want there to be either one of those separately. We need roots and branches all together. Uh, 
the, the fact that the Lord in his original quorum of the Twelve Apostles would call a zealot and a publican, someone who hates Rome and someone who works for Rome and says, figure it out. Uh, the fact that uh, you'd have a Jewish core and a Gentile coming in, uh, you take a Peter and a Paul and force them to coexist. We need roots and we need branches in the church. We need difference. We need each other. So when the Lord throughout this allegory speaks of grafting things in, open yourself for some piece of foreign material to be grafted into your precious tree. It will make all the difference in them as your moisture flows into them, and it will make all the difference in you as their life flows into you. We need each other. That idea runs throughout this allegory. Just a few phrases to throw out to you. Verse 37. The wild branches have overcome the roots. That's the problem, if there's too much of that. 65. Lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft. There's the problem with that. There are some places where branches threaten to overcome roots. Other places where roots threaten to be too strong for branches. Compare those negative outcomes to the one mentioned in 66, that the root and the top may be equal in strength. Or 73, they did keep the root and the top thereof equal according to the strength thereof. Or 74, and the fruits were equal. My testimony is that God cares for all his trees. In verse 63, he says it this way, he cares for old and young, first and last, last and first, that all may be nourished once again for the last time. What an echo of 2 Nephi 26:33, that magnificent verse where God says, black and white, male and female, Jew and Gentile, bond and free, all are alike unto God. Branches and roots, we need each other. And so as he says in verse 74, and they became like unto one body. If your faith in the church is shaking, it may be because there are still too many ites within us, instead of all becoming one through the true, pure love of Christ. My, my hope and prayer in the shaking of faith over church issues is that A, we learn what scaffolding is and where God places his value in pulpit or pew, that he still finds great value and meaning for the church, even though it's means and not ends. That there are, is room and place and need for both roots and branches. That we need to truly become one body in Christ.